Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Let's say the last part together here. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this call that we have here in this psalm to praise you. The, the, the command that goes out to all creation to praise your name, to praise you for who you are and for what you have done for us. Lord, we do desire that our lives would be a reflection of this, that we would live lives that are full of praise, that are full of thanksgiving uh, for who you are and what you have done for us. God, meet with us this morning as we look to your word. Help us to set our hearts in the right place as we, as we look to you and long for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's this interesting phenomenon in music and in film that has mostly occurred in my lifetime. Uh, it's kind of been this, this new thing. Uh, you'll figure out how old I am maybe here in a second. Um, it's been especially true like kind of since the 80s. Uh, but in music, it first occurred, the first known occurrence was in 1969 by the Beatles on their album, Abbey Road. So that was about 10 years before I was born. And then in 1979, the year before I was born, uh, the Muppet movie had this thing occur. What am I talking about? It's the hidden track at the end of an album. And it's the post-credit scene at the end of a movie. And we love this, don't we? We look forward to this. Have you ever been in the movie theater and the credits start to roll and everybody starts to walk out and you're like, no, you got to stay. Like, you don't know what's coming, right? Like, there might be something really exciting. Like, it might be the teaser trailer for the next movie, right? you got to stay. Don't leave. What is it, where does that come from? Why do we have that longing? Why do we have that expectation of this like there's more, right? I think it's an instinct that we all have that the story isn't finished. That there's more to come. Even, even the best movie, even the best ending to the best movie, we can go back and pick it apart, right? And be like, well, they didn't really explain this. Or there's got, like, there's got to be more to the story. Music albums, they, they stir our hearts and our minds and they, they bring up a lot of questions. They leave us longing for more. And again, the movies... Like, what's coming next? Is there a sequel? This phenomenon that there has to be more to the story, this has been the constant experience of the people of God throughout redemptive history. We see the creation, fall, redemption, and consummation elements woven throughout the story of the people of God. Adam and Eve, created in perfection, in paradise, that they sin. And they're kicked out of paradise, never to return again. And there's this longing, as we read that story, there's this longing in the human soul to return, right? To get back to Eden, back to paradise. Abraham, he's promised the gift of the land. And he lives his whole life not seeing that promise fulfilled. And Genesis ends with 
Joseph and his brothers in Egypt. Then they're, they're slaves in Egypt, and the question is, will God keep his promises? There's this longing to get to the land of promise, to get to the place that God has promised, and we're left wondering, will this happen? Will God keep his promises? Under Moses, they have the exodus where they go out of Egypt, but then they're wandering in the wilderness, right? And you have some people who are saying, let's just go back to Egypt. It was better there. There's others who are saying, no, God has called us to the promised land. Let's keep going. Under Joshua, there's the conquest of the land. They finally get into the land. But it's not long before idolatry and and things start to happen under Solomon and, and then under his son Rehoboam. The kingdom is divided. The people are sent off into exile. Israel and Judah, they're separated. And the question that keeps coming up is, will God keep his promises? Will God restore his people and bring them back to the land? The Old Testament ends with the people coming back to the land, rebuilding the temple. But there's this sense that there's still this deep dissatisfaction, that things aren't the way they ought to be. And we know that the Old Testament ends, and between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's 400 years of silence. There's kind of this idea that that God's word has has gone silent, that he's not speaking to his people. He's not telling them what to do and, and where to go. And so, again, this question kind of comes up is, will God keep his promises? Kind of to give a, a little teaser of where we're going, uh, we're going to be spending the next 10 weeks in the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at the I Am statements of Jesus. And then from there, we're going to transition into Luke's Gospel. And I love Luke's Gospel because it's, uh, you know, Luke opens up by talking about how he's giving this detailed account. And the, the first couple chapters of Luke, we know it's like the Christmas story, right? But the first two chapters of Luke are filled with all of these Old Testament references, all these things that are pointing back to God's promises and helping the people to see, like, you know, this little baby didn't just plop down out of nowhere, totally disconnected from everything that God had been doing for all of redemptive history. And so there's this, there's this weaving together of the story. There's this connection. And um, so little teaser there, and I hope you're as excited about that as I am, but really looking forward to, to digging into that. We well, might be thinking, okay, so what? Like, what does all this have to do with Psalm 150? It actually has a lot to do with Psalm 150. The title of the message this morning is The Ultimate Praise Outro. And we're looking at this final psalm in the collection of 150 psalms. And Danny mentioned last week that Psalm 146 to 150 is kind of a conclusion to the whole collection of psalms, and that it is this post-exilic, it is after the, the people have come back from exile and that they're celebrating who God is and what he has done. The people are back in the land. But again, there's, there's more to the story and there's this deep longing within the people, this deep spiritual longing. So in light of that, in light of their situation and in light of our situation, the question that I want to put before us this morning is which version of the story informs our longing? Is it the human version of the story that says, get all you can while you can because this is all there is and this is as good as it's going to get? Is that hedonistic, narcissistic approach, is that, is that the version that informs our lives and informs our longing? Or maybe the softer approach that says, be kind, recycle, rescue puppies and kitties. I'm not against any of these things, just to be clear. 
But can those things fulfill our deepest longings? Because there's always more people to be nice to. There's always more plastic bottles to dig out of the ocean. There's always more puppies and kitties that need rescuing. But what if our deepest longings can only be fulfilled by looking away from ourselves and looking away from the needs that we see in front of us in this world? I'm going to argue that that's what Psalm 150 is all about. And we see it right here in the very first word. Hallelujah. Now your English translation probably says, praise the Lord. They've taken the one Hebrew word, which is a combination of of three words, literally, praise the Lord, hallelujah, Yahweh, right? Hallelujah. It's one word. That's how this whole psalm starts off, telling us to praise the Lord. And if you flip back to Psalm 146, if you look at the beginning of Psalm 146 and the end of Psalm 146, and if you look at Psalm 147 and 148, and 149, and 150. See the same thing, right? All five of these psalms begin and end with hallelujah. Praise the Lord. 150 psalms, all of these different things that have been covered, and it all ends by taking our eyes off of the world, the problems in the world. We've, we've looked at the, the psalms of lament. We've looked at all of these different kinds of psalms, and, and those things are all... Very good and very important. But we end here with our eyes being shifted off of ourselves and off of our needs and straight to the Lord and who he is. The word, the first part of this word, which is actually the word that's used in the rest of, starting in verse, uh, the second part of verse 1, praise God, praise him, praise, 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 praise. That is the word hallel, which is the first part of hallelujah. It means to praise or to boast or to glory or to, or to exalt. And throughout the Psalms, this word is used over and over. And God is only ever the object of this word. We don't praise, we don't boast in, we don't exalt in, we don't glory in anything except the Lord. So again, we worship and direct our worship to him alone. Psalm 150 here, this outro to the outro collection of of 146 to 150. It reiterates that it's all about God. And the psalmist then in this psalm is going to answer four specific questions about our praise that we will ask as we walk through Psalm 150 here. So if you're taking notes, uh, the back side of the the worship guide there, there is a blank, uh, there's a blank page. You just write these down if you want. Where, why, how, and who. Those are the four questions we're going to be looking at. Where, why, how, and who. First question is, where should we praise the Lord? Verse 1, it says, praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Two places that are listed. In his sanctuary, which is probably talking about the temple here. Talking about temple worship, about corporate, the corporate worship of God's people. We see this mentioned throughout the Psalms. The second place is in his mighty heavens. And that's talking about in the whole world. All of creation singing his praises. And that is also mentioned throughout the Psalms. These two places remind us of two important realities in our worship that we talk about a lot here. 
The first one is God's imminence. That means that God is near to us. He's imminent. He is, he is close to us when we gather to worship him. The second part is his transcendence. It means that he's, he's other or he's out there. Not that he's not near, uh, but he is, he is so high and lifted up that there's a sense that we can't even draw near to him um, in some senses. And I think Isaiah's vision is really helpful with that. So it's this kind of paradoxical idea that God is both, he's both near, he's both imminent, and he's, he's also transcendent. He's, he's out there. So God draws near, he makes himself intimately known to us in our corporate worship as we sing, as we pray, as we read, as we preach his word, and as we observe the sacraments. But he also reveals himself to us in the majesty of his creation. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. So in that, we get a glimpse of his transcendent glory and his beauty in the wonders that he has made. There's this sense when you, you look out into the night sky, you look at the moon, you look at the stars, that's transcendence. That's, I can't get there, right? I can't reach that. It's, it's too far beyond me. And then you go pick a leaf and you hold it in your hand and you look at it. That's imminence, right? That's seeing, wow, God is so near in his glory and in his beauty. So I want to ask us again, which version of the story informs our longing? Does our weekly corporate worship at gathering as the people of God, as we sing and pray and read and preach and observe the sacraments, does that inform our longing for what is to come? Or is it some other version of the story that the world around us is trying to tell us? Do we just chalk up the wonder of the created order of these amazing things around us to random chance? Do we think that there's just something else going on out there? A couple months ago I was uh, listening to Spotify and I'm sure if you are a non-Spotify premium person like me, you just love the ads when they pop up. Some of them are insanely annoying, but... One of them came up, and it was the Pure Michigan playlist, okay? They said, nature's an orchestra just waiting for a conductor. And I was like, no! There is a conductor, come on! Is that the version of the story? That, oh, we just look at these amazing things, and it's just waiting for a conductor. Waiting for you to step right in, right? And be the master of the universe. Or do we look to God's gracious self-revelation that we may know him and praise him and glorify him? It's no accident that in this psalm we're directed 13 times in six verses to praise the Lord. So the next question, we see that, okay, I'm told to do this. The next question that most of us will logically ask is, why? Why should we praise the Lord? You're telling us here, psalmist, that it's really important to praise the Lord. So why should we praise the Lord? That is our second question. We're given two reasons why we should praise the Lord. And we've talked about these several times over the last couple months as we've been in the Psalms. First, we should praise God for who he is. Second, we should praise God for what he has done for us. Psalm 150 first lists what God has done for us. Praise him for his mighty deeds. 
his deeds of creation, his, his deeds of redemption. If you want to jot this down and go back and look at it later, Psalm 147, just a couple psalms before this. There are 20 verses in Psalm 147. I count 28 different things that God has done for his people. It's just rapid fire, over and over, all these things that God has done for us. It's amazing as you read through it. And that list should cause us to respond to God with unending praise. Say, God, thank you for all these things you've done to create the world, to redeem us from sin, to to bring us back to yourself. And that's, there's more places, obviously, than, than Psalm 147. We saw it in Psalm 103. We've seen it all throughout the Psalms this summer. All of these things that God has done for us. And then it tells us who God is. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. God is great. He is excellently great. We saw it in Psalm 103, verse 8. Psalm 145, which Danny shared with us last week, verses 8 and 9, it says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. It's talking about who God is. It's talking about his character and his nature. That should also cause us to respond with unending praise. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you have done for us. And again, I'm going to ask, which version of the story informs our longing? Is it what God has revealed to us in his word about who he is and what he has done for us? There's no ambiguity here. I don't think we can honestly read the Bible and come away saying, you know, I just don't really, I don't see it. Like, I don't see God telling us who he is. I don't see him reminding us of what he has done for us. It's on every single page. Even the genealogies, it's there, okay? Every single page of Scripture tells us who God is and what he has done for us. We don't urge Bible reading so you can go and check off the boxes and brag to your friends about how you read through the Bible in a year. We urge you to be in God's word because that's where he's going to tell you who he is and what he has done for you. He's going to remind you over and over on every page about those things. So brothers and sisters, let us let our longings be fulfilled by God's version of the story. The version that he has given us in his word. And friend, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, I know you've got a lot of questions about life. I know you've got a lot of questions about where your life is going. I hope you're not expecting me to have all the answers. I don't. I don't have all the answers for my own life. But God's word does. If you go to him, he will give you the answers. He will show you who he is and what he has done for you. And if you're, again, if you're here and you're not a Christian and you want to know those things and where you can find answers to those things, please talk with us. Talk with me. Talk with the person you came with. Third question, how? How should we praise the Lord? Verses 3 to 5 tell us that. It's to make a lot of noise, right? We see this list of all these instruments making noise to the Lord. I love the quote that's on the front of your worship guide from James Boyce. Okay, This quote comes from a Presbyterian, just so you know. 
He says, let's be done with worship that is always weak and unexciting. If you cannot sing loudly and make loud music to praise the God who has redeemed you in Jesus Christ and is preparing you for heaven, perhaps it's because you do not really know God or the gospel at all. If you do know him, hallelujah, right? Praise the Lord. Now, I'm not saying we have to get all rowdy and crazy all the time in our worship, right? Again, we are Presbyterians, so we don't, you know, we don't have like tambourine lady and we're not doing crazy stuff. But we should be, it should be okay to, to be loud, right? And to show emotion in our worship as a response of, of what God has done for us in Christ. And yes, it is okay to use instruments in worship. I'm not going to get into this whole uh, debate, but there are sincere, godly churches, godly brothers and sisters in Christ that disagree with us on this issue, and that's okay. Um, if you're interested in that topic, I would love to talk with you more about it later, but I'm not going to dive into that right now. Um, I think Psalm 150 gives us pretty good reasoning for using instruments in worship. Because I think it, it speaks to the creativity and the artistic expression that is part of our corporate worship, part of how God has, God has given us these things to express our praise to him. So instruments and dancing, these can help us experience God's imminence, God's nearness, and his transcendence uh, in, in addition to our voices uh, singing praises to him. And you think about um, you know, maybe different instruments, like a drum might kind of be the imminence, like you feel it like deeply and, it, and it's near and maybe somebody's up here with a violin playing something that's like whoa like that's transcendent right like God has given us this different range of of instruments and music to to experience him in those different ways so the question that I've asked with every section here is which version of the story informs our longing and I think it's very applicable when we think about music music is a very powerful thing Music communicates to our souls in a very unique way. Most of us have had this experience probably sometime in our lives, if not very often, where we're, we're deeply moved by a song. Whether it's the beat of the song that like, you know, kind of gets you grooving, or it's lyrics that maybe stop you in your tracks like, whoa, like, I need to stop and think about that, right? Or that like, maybe something from a song really connects with what's going on in your life. So the question I want to put before us is, what kind of music are you letting into your soul? What kind of music are you letting inform your life? And I'm not arguing that we should only ever listen to Christian music. I think there is a value in carefully engaging with secular music. I shared about this at our outdoor service, uh, how uh, there was... I was just kind of thinking about this idea of, of angst, and I, I went back and listened to some, a few Metallica songs. I'm not necessarily endorsing that you listen to Metallica, but I was listening to a few of these songs and just feeling the angst that is, that is coming out of their music and trying to like identify what are people feel like what are people wrestling with when people listen to this music. What is this connection that they feel? Why do they feel this angst? And if you remember, I kind of compared it to a lot of contemporary Christian music, and I think one of my biggest frustrations with contemporary Christian music is there's just no angst, right? Everything's just like happy all the time. Jesus is my best friend. I'm so blessed. But that's not real life, right? That's not how we experience life as Christians. And not that we should never sing those happy songs, 
But if, if that's the only thing on your playlist, something's wrong, right? Go find some songs of lament. Go find some angsty songs. Do it carefully. You know, don't just listen to like anything. But I think we need to be able to, we need to, be able to experience that full range of, of emotions in the music we listen to. Again, we should, I think we should ask some very important questions about the music we listen to. First is, does it evoke praise to God? Does the music we listen to make us want to praise God? Or even if you're listening to something Metallica-like, like, does, it, does it show you the brokenness of humanity and cause you to say, man, people need Jesus, right? So does it evoke praise to God or is it self-exalting? Second, does it cause us to long for the coming of God's kingdom or does it make us long more for the stuff of this world? I really wish I could go back and, and unlearn or unlisten to so much of the music that I, I consumed as a young person. There's so much nonsense that I filled my heart and my mind with. If I'm walking in the store and I hear lyrics to a song, I mean, I know the song, I can, I can sing all the words to the song. But those are, those are things, those are words that did not leave me longing with, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But my kingdom is here and I'm doing my own will. But I praise God for his grace. I praise him for the new hope and the new longing. And psalms that lift up my eyes beyond this empty, the empty hopes of this world to a greater reality. Where all of creation will join in singing praises of our great Redeemer and King. And we see this in our fourth and final question in verse 6. Who should praise the Lord? The psalmist gives a sweeping answer. At least every living creature. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Psalm 98, which we sang a few moments ago, verse 4 says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in joyous song and sing praises. Then verses 5 and 6 talk about the trumpet and the lyre, the same instruments we see here in Psalm 150. Then verses 7 and 8 add another wrinkle. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. So the psalmist here is talking about all of creation, the roaring sea, the rivers, the hills, everything that breathes is to praise the Lord. Again, which version of the story informs our longing? Which version of consummation do we have to look forward to? Psalm 150 doesn't fully answer that question. One commentator summarizes Psalm 150 saying, The psalm is more than an artistic close to the Psalter. It is a prophecy of the last result of the devout life. And in its unclouded sunniness, as well as in its universality, it proclaims the certain end of the weary years for the individual and for the world. But we here today, we are left looking forward for that certain end. We are left looking forward to that prophesied end. We've asked the question almost every Sunday uh, this summer as we've been going through the Psalms, how do the Psalms point us to Jesus? 
how do the Psalms point us forward to Jesus? Some of them, it was very obvious, right? Psalm 2, Psalm 8, Psalm 110. There's a lot of Psalms that are very clear, that very clearly point us forward to Jesus. But I can't think of a better place that Psalm 150 finds its ultimate fulfillment than in the picture of worship around the throne in Revelation chapter 5. You can turn there if you want to, uh, to follow along. It's on page uh, 1030 if you have the Pew Bible. But in Revelation chapter 5, John sees the Lord seated on the throne with a scroll in his right hand. And an angel asks the question, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And he sees that no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth is able to open the scroll. And he begins to weep. He's weeping. And one of the elders comes and says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He continues in verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though, though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And notice this next verse as it ties into Psalm 150, verse 6. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down, and worshipped. Is this the God we are living for, and longing for? Is this the kind of worship that our worship here on earth is preparing us to enjoy forever? Are we living out our identity as a ransomed people, worshiping our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain for us? Let us long for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that as the, the Psalms close with this picture of, of praise, as we are pointed forward in longing and expectation for a, a day that is to come, thank you that we're not just left hanging. We thank you for John's vision in Revelation 5 that points us forward very clearly to what it will be like to be gathered with your people from every tribe and tongue and people and language, gathered around your throne, 
worshiping you, singing your praises, glorying in, exulting in, boasting in who you are and what you have done for us in Christ to create us, to save us, to bring us to yourself, to bring us to glory. God, give us longing and expectant hearts as we look for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.